Life is confusing. Science helps. Welcome to Gorilla Science Presents. A brand new podcast for the curious minded. Taking a deep dive through the spectrum of human experience to answer life's big questions. Let's liberate the lab, shake up the science, and get Sci-Curious. Gorilla by name, Gorilla by nature. I'm Rachel Williams. I'm your host and resident neuroscientist. And I'm Rebecca Ellis. I'm not a scientist, but I am proudly Sci-Curious. Hello, and welcome to episode three of Gorilla Science Presents. Trip or Treat? Scientists, psychedelics, and shamans. The well-being industry is valued at over $4 trillion and booming like never before. An industry that regularly offers things that people didn't even realise they needed. Bee sting therapy, vampire facials, and of course, there's always Gwyneth Paltrow's jade vagina eggs. From yoga retreats to silent retreats, personal bests and cryotherapy chambers, wellness means different things to different people. But more and more, people are seeking an alternative to prescriptions and talk therapy. In 2018, the European Commission estimated that spending on complementary and alternative medicines by consumers now tops 100 million euro. We are a society obsessed with productivity and productivity hacks, from coffee to nootropics to smart drugs. Microdosing which is the practice of taking minute quantities of hallucinogenic drugs such as LSD, psilocybin or mescaline every few days, is gaining popularity as a potential route to increase productivity, self-optimization, and gaining that competitive edge. Should we consider psychedelics as a type of technology? And does microdosing actually boost creativity? This is certainly a long way from LSD's roots in 1960s counterculture. The turning on, tuning in and dropping out generation approach of tripping, losing control and experimenting with different states of consciousness. We are now undergoing a major revival. Some are calling it the renaissance of psychedelics. Plant medicines have been used as remedies across the world for generations and are now being held as potential treatments for depression and other ailments by clinicians and researchers. But could DMT really unlock the secrets of consciousness? Could a psychedelic chaplain change your life? And what role does ritual and ceremony play in your experience? In August 2019, stock market speculators began calling psychedelics the next billion dollar business. In March 2020, Toronto-based neuropharmaceutical outfit MindMed made history as the world's first publicly trading psychedelics company. How can the worlds of science, shamanism and spirituality combine for a whole new take on what it means to be well? Or has globalisation corrupted the possibility of an authentic cultural exchange? And how does wellbeing tourism and cultural appropriation threaten wisdom traditions and communities? This is going to be quite some ride. And we are in really good company with our guests. We talk to a cultural anthropologist, a psychopharmacologist a psychedelic chaplain, a UX designer, the founder of an ayahuasca retreat centre in Peru, a curious participant in an Imperial College London microdosing trial, a neuroscientist at the Psychedelic Research Centre, a dreamweaver, and a journalist who was sent to the Amazon to do a story about ayahuasca. So in our research phase, we set out thinking that microdosing was going to be a really interesting focus point for us. 
yet through plant medicines, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy and wisdom traditions, we quickly realised that we were actually taking a journey into new ways of understanding consciousness and into a promising new model of treatment. Perhaps a good place to start was with Florence Okoye, UX designer and founder of Afrofutures UK. We asked her if psychedelics should be seen as a type of technology. And what is her definition of technology? I like to put it as anything that humans use to extend our reach through time or space. Um, and so that's not just material technologies, but social technologies kind of fall into that. Um, one of the, there's a great Afrofuturist thinker, Yatasha Womack, and she very much draws on like critical race studies and talks about how like that means things like race, for example, is a technology. It's not something innate. It's something humans specifically created in order to do a certain thing across space and time. And then you can extend that to think about gender, to think about sexuality, to think about song, religion, law, like all of these things can be analysed as technologies because fundamentally they're a way that humans can kind of go beyond like the reach of the individual. So how do drugs fit in? Even in the non-holistic way of understanding technology, drugs are kind of definitely a tech. They're things that we work very hard to engineer. We have very specific protocols for how you engineer and create specific drugs to have very specific effects. Um, we have a whole, you know, massive amounts of analytical models to understand their effect and to evaluate them. So in that sense, you know, they are very much technologies. I think one of the things that really comes out is the fact that like the, the process of identifying a supposed problem that the drug has to deal with is also that place where, you know, where earlier I was talking about how technologies reify and they embody what we actually think as a society. In a sense, drugs are a really good way of doing that. They're a way of actually understanding, oh, okay, if, if, we're, ha if we're having all these drugs to say, stop people from what, we're, what we call as a society hallucinating, that tells you instantly that this is a society that considers reality to be this type of thing that, and it works in this particular way. And anyone who has any other kind of experiences is ill like by, by this system. That person is an aberration and needs to be kind of like, in a way, dealt with somehow. With the use of nootropics, commonly known as smart drugs, and microdosing, a growing phenomenon, we asked her about the intersections between drugs and labour in the emerging psychedelic landscape and how psychedelics have shifted from being a tool to expand our minds and consciousness into a boost for productivity in a bid to be better and optimised. So thinking, especially on this topic of, about smart drugs, so much of the language that's used is about productivity. Like, you know, people want to feel productive or people want to be able to study harder or people want to be able to do this. And really what that holistic, critical perspective, you know, I, as a service designer, I would say, OK, really what that's saying is this is a society that thinks the, the ultimate goal of a person is basically to keep working. And I find that this language, and you, you know, there's, there's other tells, even when we talk about other technologies like digital technologies, it's really fascinating. People talk about automation and it's interesting when the benefits are always things like, and they don't get tired, they keep going. They can keep going and going and going. And so again, from a critical perspective, really what this is saying is that's the goal, really. That's, that is the assumption that this is like the, the ultimate, that's, a, that's the best expression of what it means to be a useful, functioning, helpful member of society. Well, that's a really depressing thought. Capitalist society optimising humans like a rebooted version of the Industrial Revolution. 
what a far cry from the 1960s culture around psychedelics, where it was all about losing control and a quest for enlightenment. There's something hilarious about that, like LSD, the quintessential stereotypical hippie drug that people are taking to kind of chill, relax, see new aspects of reality or whatever, better understand themselves. And now it's like, actually, this really helps me um, focus really, really hard and make, again, more profit for this giant company that probably doesn't particularly care for me as an individual. But my worth is derived from how much I can contribute to this entity making a profit. The conversation about work and productivity and how much we value that as a culture almost goes hand in hand with conversations around wellness, well-being and the massive industry that's cropped up around it. In this productivity-obsessed culture, microdosing might just be the next big thing. But what is it like to microdose at work? Does it actually unlock your creative potential? Or is the excitement of slipping a tab of acid under your tongue at work enough to convince you it's working? And in the search for cognitive enhancement and self-augmentation, does microdosing provide another way for humans to level up and keep up? We spoke to Bobby, whose name we have changed for confidentiality, about his participation in Imperial College London's microdosing trial. He describes how his interest in microdosing is part of a wider curiosity around the possibilities of augmentation of the human body. My, my interest in transhumanism and post-humanism and this notion of the, the cyborg and uh, a body that can be upgraded or, you know, altered in new and interesting ways. So I think just the idea of self-augmentation and um, cognitive enhancement is uh, something that I've found fascinating for a long time. As part of the study, Bobby took a microdose of 10 micrograms of LSD every three days for a period of six weeks. The participants could choose between LSD and psilocybin. Bobby chose LSD. I think LSD just has, there's a certain kind of mysticism about it, you know, the way that people write about it. And I, I work in cybersecurity, I work with computers, and there are all these tales from the, the kind of early days of Silicon Valley in the 60s and 70s of these programmers taking LSD to help them solve these complex technical problems. Fun fact for you, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates have both openly talked about experimenting with LSD. And apparently people who microdose are sometimes referred to as psychonauts. Aside from the novelty factor of feeling a dose of LSD on his daily commute to his job in cybersecurity, what did Bobby make of the experience? People often look at uh, kind of cognitive enhancing drugs with the, the idea that, you know, suddenly you'll take this pill and you'll be able to do all of these complicated math problems that you've never studied before and don't know <laughs> what they are you know it's not gonna, it's not going to do that i think what i think the value in something like this is is that it can just help your mind to approach the same problem slightly differently It'll help you to access the knowledge that you already have in a slightly different way and put it in a slightly different context microdoses often talk about a flow state that helps with lateral thinking and encourages more empathetic interpersonal relationships and cognitive flexibility. Having taken LSD at recreational levels a number of times before developing an interest in microdosing, I think what my hope for the microdosing was that it would allow you to kind of access a small portion of, of that mindset that you're able to adopt while taking a larger dose of LSD. 
what I've always found at the end of an LSD trip, like when it's just kind of wearing off, is um, I always find myself kind of really productive where I'll be I'll be reading a lot and I'll be interested in new topics and just like frantically reading loads of information about stuff. I think what I was aiming to do with the microdosing was to kind of capture just that tail end of the, the LSD experience rather than having to go through the kind of six hours of not being able to read your watch. Interestingly, Bobby was also part of a mind hacking group who experimented with hypnosis. He mentioned that all of the group just so happened to work in tech. It got us thinking about the correlation between those in the tech world, the coders, those that spend their time augmenting, programming, hacking and manipulating systems and processes. And it makes sense that they might be drawn to some kind of system update or upgrade, creating that ultimate hybrid, a mix of tech, human integration, psychedelic intervention. Perhaps that's the future. Let's have a look at what the clinical trials actually find about the efficacy of microdosing. We spoke to Celia Morgan, Professor of Psychopharmacology at the University of Exeter, about interesting findings in some of the preliminary trials. They got people to make their own placebo. So these were people that were going to be microdosing anyway, and they got them to make mix up these envelopes in a, in a clever way so that people didn't know what they were getting, whether they were getting placebo or a microdose. Um, and what they found was good in a way. It was that when you take microdose, you do enhance your creativity and your well-being and, and your cognitive function. But you did, I think, for some of them, even more so when you took the placebo. But and I guess it makes sense. Like if a drug isn't having an effect, it's probably not <laughs> you know, doing anything extra. So it sort of makes sense. But yeah, because microdosing is one of those things that's been wildly popular, right? And everyone says, oh, people in Silicon Valley, so people are taking these dose of drugs that don't really do anything. But they do do something. I mean, your creativity improves, but it does with placebo. But it's really difficult to know what to do with that because <laughs> you don't want to get that effect and you can't really give yourself a placebo. That's really interesting. I think sometimes you hear placebo effect and think that that means the treatment does nothing. But the placebo effect is actually a real response to a treatment that in essence has no active substance that affects your health. I guess it shows the power of suggestion and expectation. It's important to mention that although placebos can make you feel better, whether that's by increasing creativity or decreasing chronic pain, they can't treat the source of the issue itself. We asked Celia about her thoughts on the burgeoning wellness industry and why some are seeking out non-conventional treatments. The reason we're seeing the surge in people looking for non-conventional treatments is that the, a lot of the conventional ones don't work, you know, and that people are trying to seek a more authentic experience, I suppose. It's just kind of questions how people are doing it. But, you know, like, I, yeah, I, I believe it's that there's a lot of mental health problems now. People are seeking new ways. I mean, we know these treatments work. It's just the way in which we're delivering them. I think we need to have a good look at and the reasons behind it. It seems to always be like commodified wellness, focusing on a very individualistic version of that, you know, like where's the community in these programmes? I don't see that very much. Because mindfulness was massively popular, and it still is, you know, we've done some research on it as a treatment in psychology. But the way it's been adopted by all different industries, it's something like from a sales magazine that says, get the competitive edge. Other sales teams are becoming more mindful than you. <laughs> That's like the very opposite of mindfulness, but in a, just a very individualistic way with a really, yeah, a kind of unusual yeah, aim. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a deep need for healing in society, right? So that's what people are craving. We spoke more with Celia about her work around psychoactive drugs and mental health. You might be aware that ketamine's recently been licensed for the treatment of depression. So it's a specific form of ketamine, which is intranasal ketamine. But it's the ketamine users that I work with think it's hilarious that someone's patented snorting ketamine. <laughs> but the work that I've done is looking with ketamine to treat alcohol use disorder. But we've been using it very much in combination with psychological therapy. So a lot of the work in the depression field comes from psychiatrists. And it's basically giving ketamine as a pharmacological treatment. But we don't really see it as that. It's not the drug on its own. It's using it as a catalyst for the therapy um, and as a kind of experiential stepping stone and things like mindfulness practice. So we use it from that perspective. But yeah, we've just finished a trial which was funded by the government. So that's good at least that the research councils are moving to fund um, research in psychedelics and substances like this. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, they would have completely laughed at you if you proposed this. What were the findings of Celia's trial? It was a clinical trial looking at ketamine um, for the treatment of alcohol use disorder. And so we were giving ketamine alongside therapy. And we found in our study that people given ketamine with psychological therapy um, had the great lowest chance of relapse and the most days of abstinence at six months. So this was a really short treatment. We gave them three intravenous infusions of ketamine um, surrounded by seven sessions of psychological therapy. Yes, it's really exciting for us that that works and we're hoping to take that work forward. So how does ketamine affect the brain? Does it work similarly to antidepressants like SSRIs that are typically used in the treatment of depression and anxiety? And how does therapy work alongside ketamine? There's some potential similarity. We still don't really, really know how normal antidepressants like SSRIs work, which is really amazing because they were discovered by accident. And people who've taken them know that it, there's two week, there's a two-week kind of lead-in time. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that we think that they work is that they boost something called neurogenesis, so the growth of new neurons and bits of your brain that are important in learning and memory, like an area called the hippocampus. But ketamine is really different. I mean, it works really quickly. So people start to feel, and people who are so depressed they can't get out of bed, so people who've got what's called treatment-resistant depression, they've tried all sorts of treatments, often things as severe as electroconvulsive therapy, still can't get out of bed, given ketamine, and within hours they're up and about, they're feeling completely different. And we think it works on this same process of neurogenesis, so it makes the brain able to generate more new neurons, and also it works on something called synaptogenesis, which is similar which allows the brain to make new connections more quickly. And in a way, that's what we're asking people to do in psychological therapy, to take a different perspective and to learn new things, think about different connections between things. So it almost seems, I mean, it might be overly simplistic, but like a kind of neurological correlate of that. And maybe that's why it sort of boosts the brain's ability to learn new things. This is a really exciting time for neuroscience. A lot of Celia's research comes from an interest in consciousness and drugs that change consciousness. So what does this experience feel like? We get things like people reporting visual distortions, time distortion, and then these these feelings that are really linked to psychedelic experience that people talk about, ego dissolution. So it's your sense of yourself as you are normally kind of disintegrates and you become, and it often happens at the same time as feeling connected to the universe. So they'll have a sense of themselves as really, really small, broken down to like an atomic level, but also part of something greater. 
I mean, and it's that kind of spiritual sense of connection to the universe that I think might be really powerful in treatment as well. Certainly with alcoholism, programs like Alcoholics Anonymous rely on this spiritual sense of giving people a sense of higher meaning in life in order to evoke their positive changes therapeutically. So it makes sense that that might be something at play here. Natasha Pelgrim is a wellness retreat director at Synthesis, a safe, legal, medically supervised psychedelic retreat in Amsterdam. They offer psychedelic ceremonies for personal transformation in a professionally curated setting. We are based in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. We hold transformational retreats for healing and insight. And we do that in a safe, legal setting. We use uh, truffles containing psilocybin. We are medically supervised uh, during our ceremonies. We uh, focus on preparation and integration before our retreats, our in-person retreats. And we've been holding retreats for over two years now with over 700 uh, participants. Uh, recently, we have invited a new group in, which is the some that have worked with Imperial College. Uh, Dr. Rosalind Watts is our clinical director uh, and building our very first psychedelic psilocybin therapy. What is psilocybin? Psilocybin is a molecule or a substance that is in magic mushrooms and in uh, truffles, a truffle sort. Um, and psilocybin is a substance that alters your consciousness or expands your consciousness. Uh, so this is my favorite work, expansion. One of the things that you can experience is getting out of your narrowed view and having a, a broader view of yourself. We asked Natasha what it's like to be at the nexus of science and spirituality, working with a clinical advisor and bringing the world of research into their practice. I love the word paradigm and creating a new paradigm. And what does that look like? To me, that looks like where, you know, there's this division and we are indoctrinated with it through, I think, religion, but that science and spirituality cannot go hand in hand. Now, I think we've come to an age where we have the, the renaissance of psychedelics, the third wave of it, and we're already almost passing through that, that third wave. We're now coming to a point where we're saying, okay, what are we actually creating instead of talking about it, right? So the science aspect to really see what happens in a neuroplasticity with serotonin, to really look at the brain, what's happening, this will give people so much more insight about the power of what plants do. And in this specific, these plant medicines do. And to educate, I think, to create safety in a ceremonial setting or a facilitation setting, safety is many different things. Yes, your physical safety of the set and setting of the space, but one of the first things is the cognitive mental safety. We are a mind-based society. Well, after or during the ceremony, you'll be walking out realizing, oh, I have a heart and I did feeling work, but that's a different stage. But I think the education for safety and understanding is crucial. This is the reason why we, since day one, and I joined Synthesis after the first pilot retreat in 2018, we have done and worked together with Imperial College with holding surveys pre and post ceremonies. 
So we have been able to hold ceremonies for over 700 people and actually have data from that, which until now nobody has done yet. This model of a drug alongside treatment, in this case psilocybin with a ceremony, is aligned with Celia's research into ketamine alongside talking therapy. Throughout our conversation, it became clear that the use of a drug alone is not sufficient to bring about that personal transformational change. Natasha described the work that needs to go alongside the mind-expanding experience of taking truffles containing psilocybin. However, it isn't a magic pill. None of it is. It's hard work, <laughs> you know? So this means that for a therapeutic setting and also for those that are, have questions in their life and not necessarily a diagnose, and they need to understand that psychedelics is something that opens the door, but you still have to walk through it. What this means is you need extensive alternative or more uh, academic approaches of therapy, it doesn't matter what resonates with you, to guide you through what is uncovered. And sometimes it's not even one ceremony, you need multiple ceremonies over an extended time of period. So a lot of the beautiful articles out there treating depression, doing this, and it's almost gives this idea which bypasses the work. You still need to meditate. You still need to use your body. You still need to maybe have creative processing, journaling as a toolkit, uh, have talk therapy, somatic therapy, you know, like those things complement it. It's not just this um, truffles containing psilocybin. So what can somebody do to prepare for the hard work? The work that I do today as a facilitator with plant medicines or psychedelics, my, some of your listeners may know this word better, is the most important thing is to come in with curiosity in this space. When you sit for another or even expand your own consciousness, you have to be able to let it go any preconceived ideas and be curious of what's going to show up and, and, and what these medicines are are trying to show you. I think the most important thing is you need to come in with an ability to hold yourself accountable, to really look at what kind of practices or behaviors am I already willing to change and really being able to come in with an intention and not an expectation. You know, a lot of the times people read in, intention making as my expectation, I'm gonna order it because everything is on demand nowadays. I'm going to order a mystical experience because data has shown that this will increase my neuroplasticity. <laughs> you know, like, okay, great. But what if you're crying for seven hours <laughs> and that might not feel that mystical? What then, right? Uh, that might be the biggest healing moment for you, which you realize six months in. So, you know, understanding that these might be very different processes along the way. One of the benefits of conducting research into psychedelics is their potential to help deepen our understanding of consciousness. Chris Timmerman is a researcher at the Centre of Psychedelic Research at Imperial College London. He tells us about his work. I spent five years studying the effects of DMT, which is a potent psychedelic drug in the human brain, its effects in conscious experience as well, and its potential applications for mental health. We also look at the clinical applications that psychedelics can have and how their effects in consciousness might relate to their so-called transformational effects or their potential effects in both well-being and for the treatment of mental health disorders such as depression. Nowadays, 
there's a lot of commercial interest in these compounds for their developments as medicines for different range of different applications, not just uh, for specific mental health disorders, uh, but maybe even treating inflammation, migraines, and so on. And at the same time, there's a lot of validated research from the consciousness science perspective. So how can these experience also helps us understand the human experience more broadly, or consciousness, if you will. And that has been also very validated. You have, you know, the most well-known consciousness researchers who are now interested in psychedelics and they're starting to run their own studies. Chris makes some interesting points about how there has been a shift in the perception of psychedelics and their value in mainstream society. And this isn't the first time. Despite promising findings at the time, clinical research with psychedelics was abruptly brought to a halt in 1971, when psychedelic drugs were reclassified as Class A's, and the war on drugs whipped up moral outrage among the socially conservative. This stigmatised psychedelics and led to a 40-year interruption to scientific advancement in the field, something that has been described by some as the worst censorship of science since the Dark Ages. In the 2000s, the law brought in tougher restrictions for raw magic mushrooms, ketamine and cannabis. In May 2016, the Psychoactive Substances Act came into force, banning any substance intended for human consumption that is capable of producing a psychoactive effect. Researchers have since been caught in a complicated web of rules, exemptions and the committees that govern them. However, research into psychedelics has flourished despite the obstacles. In April 2019, Imperial College officially launched the world's first formal centre for psychedelic research. We spoke to Chris about his work with DMT and how psychedelics might give us some intel about the human experience and the boundaries of conscious experience. It's evidence of thousands of years of use in Latin American regions, specifically also the Amazon uh, and the desert in the uh, southern corn, Argentina and Chile and so on. It's part of uh, the brew called ayahuasca. And, you know, it has been used for purposes of healing, ritual, sorcery, etc. in the past. When it's given intravenously or it smokes, usually when people use it recreationally, they smoke DMT. It's a highly visionary experience. It's a super immersive experience, which can be likened to some sort of virtual reality, if you will, in which your, you know, what they call consensus reality or normal waking reality is completely replaced by this alternate world, this alternate sort of space. And in this experience, a lot of pretty far out things happen. Um, people feel that they communicate with presences or entities they feel, you know, they are entering a different world, an alien space, uh, and this all having a very strong emotional tone and a tone of having a, a mystical type or a spiritual character of sorts. So these, you know, these experiences are held with a high degree of importance for many, many users, both in ritual contexts and in recreational contexts in the West. And because of that reason as well, uh, it has been started to be studied as a potential treatment for depression, specifically ayahuasca. Though ayahuasca is a plant-based brew, we can explore the effects on the brain through the chemicals involved. The ayahuasca effect results from the combination of the psychoactive compound dimethyltryptamine, or DMT, with monoamine oxidase inhibitors, such as harmine. 
Monoamine oxidase is an enzyme that stops the action of neurotransmitters, including serotonin, in the brain. By blocking monoamine oxidase, serotonin continues to be active in the brain, increasing the psychoactive effects of DMT. So can psychedelics actually free your mind on the cellular level? And how does it change the activity of networks and break fixed patterns of connectivity in the brain to create a sense of unity with the universe? We've used advanced neuroimaging techniques to understand the brains. Uh, we've looked at the brain in terms of fMRI activity or metabolic consumptions in the brain. And, and you know, that gives you a nice idea of where in the brain things are, are happening in terms of activation, deactivation and connectivity in the brain. We find that these networks stop communicating, the areas of this network are communicating in the usual way, but instead they become globally hyperconnected. So it's uh, what one, of, one of the things that we find in that regard is that these resources that we are usually using for a very focused sort of goal-driven orientation towards the world you know, that allows us to survive and engage with complex behaviors, uh, they are now being renegotiated, if you will, during the DMT experience, they become globally connected to the rest of the brain. And we think that this might be the key of why these experiences might have a transformative component as well. To get a better understanding of what an ayahuasca ceremony involves, we spoke to journalist Steve Marsh about his experiences at the Blue Morpho Lodge in Iquitos, Peru. When his editor at Delta Sky magazine said, We'd love for you to go to uh, Peru and, and drink ayahuasca. He didn't quite realise what he was getting himself into. Prior to his visit, he had filled out a disclosure form outlining any medication, drug use and mental health issues and had been advised to follow a low-fat diet and to abstain from sex and hard drugs for a week before he arrived. At the lodge, he was greeted with beautiful blue morpho butterflies and somewhat alarmingly armed guards at night. It was like $5,000 for the week or something like that. Kind of like um, Club Med kind of pricing, you know? Equipped with a toilet roll and some water, he settled into his first ceremony. We're laying on our backs and you start hearing people kind of like gagging. You know, like, ooh, you know, like retching a little bit. Then you start hearing people throwing up and then uh, soft footsteps of people being guided to the bathroom. But like, like when you'd get up, you'd start, to, you'd feel unsteady. And then like uh, a Quechua Indian would come out of the darkness and like take your elbow and help guide you to the bathroom, right? And so like the first couple hours of the trip is, is puking and and uh and vomiting you know and we're listening to these ikaros and the ikaros are, are are beautiful so kind of these like uh these pretty kind of breathy song like in quechua and you kind of focus on that when you were like feeling sick or something or or uh feeling kind of uh, queasy and then you'd be seeing all this crazy shit in your mind's eye i had a, this hallucination where i saw ganesh in between my legs in this room, you know? And, and and I was like, what does Ganesh mean? Why am I going to this like tiled space? Have I been to a place like that? I think it's just pulling things from your uh, subconscious or, or different experiences and mixing them up and spitting them back at you. Like my third trip was horrible. I like puked, I puked up spiders. I thought I, thought I was uh, vomiting spiders for hours, you know? Like I felt like kind of just like, 
what happened to me? How, like, what century am I in? What is going on? But by the end of the, and I, that I had doubled my dose for that one. And so by the fourth trip, I was back to a half a cup. And uh, in that final trip, I, I really like had an out of body experience where I kind of floated off into the jungle and I was communing with like these trees. And it was a very rich kind of beautiful green world. Beginning of the week, uh, kind of like, thinking about uh, all the kind of unpretty parts of myself, whether it's my own body or my own experiences. And by the end of the week, thinking about some something outside of myself, right? Like the, the, the jungle I was in, the natural world I was in. That last kind of communion with the natural world being like, I'm in the presence of some kind of like plant um, uh, kind of consciousness or something that's like, I, I don't know. Matthew Watherston, founder of the Temple of the Way of Light, tells us about the connection with plant life entities and the Ikaro, the traditional healing song sung by the healers in ayahuasca ceremonies to induce a profound state of healing. The Ikaro is the song of the plant. This is not something that you can learn the words of, you know, on YouTube, learn the melody. You have to go through what is called dieta. And the dieta, that's what takes 10 years. But through the dieting process, after many years, eventually a song will begin to come through them. They are channeling that song. It's coming from the plant or the tree that they've been dieting over often months and months or many years. Eventually, when that song comes through, in addition to ayahuasca, what, what the song is doing is driving ayahuasca into where those residual energies are, through the lineages, into mum, into dad, into grandma, into granddad. We are working within a medical tradition. This is a system of healthcare in the Amazon. I'm incredibly committed for Westerners to really understand the depths of this tradition, um, to, to, to really experience deep healing, that cannot happen solely by working with ayahuasca. It's really got to be accompanied by a high level, well-intentioned, good-hearted, uh, clean, uh, humble corandero. A curandero is another word for a healer or shaman. Traditionally, Icaros may come to a shaman during a ceremony, and are passed down from previous lineages of healers, or conjuring a dieta, where plant spirits are believed to teach Icarus to the shaman directly. This really is at the core of the tradition, it's plant spirit shamanism. So they recognize the sentient intelligence of the spirit of the plants that they're working with, and they make a connection, they make a communication, and they are guided. It's the plants that are healing, not the healers. Steve describes the experience with ayahuasca as one of the most significant in his life, and 10 years on still feels the positive effects from it. It feels like I did like a lifetime of therapy in five, five-hour ayahuasca sessions. And you, you come back out and you're so energized and you want to proselytize for the vine, you know, and you're like, but you're like, how can, how, everybody can't go to Iquitos, you know, like, if this, if you, if this is a holy moment, is what so many people are, are are searching for, whether it's a spiritual communion with God, or uh, whether you want to climb a mountain or risk your life to give your life some kind of meaning, like it does, kind of all of those things in a dose of some kind. But would it be different if you if you took it in like pill form in, in Minneapolis? Would it be different if you did it in a clinical uh, setting, like? the doctor's office in St. Paul. When speaking with those who are trialling, researching and working in practice with these substances, 
we saw how the importance of plant-based medicine being integrated with ritual is a recurring theme. Interestingly, context and setting have been predominant features in every single account we've heard from those who had participated in ayahuasca ceremonies. Celia had this experience when conducting some research in Peru. Travelling to Peru with all your problems and then travelling for five hours into the jungle on a boat and and then taking this hallucinogenic drug in the dark like uh, uh, and setting around it is incredible and people really benefit from it but it's difficult to know what's the drug in that setting or what's everything else, you know, the expectation. It seems that context, environment and ritual are big factors in the experience and outcome of these experiences. And it's really interesting to see how the principles of the ritual are incorporated into the clinical research. So we spoke to Chris about what ritual looks like in a clinical context. The sense of ritual is always there. Even though we don't, you know, actually have any sort of ritualistic, obvious, overt elements, we treat that experience with a certain degree of protocol, seriousness, and respect, which you can also find in, in rituals. And we do that for safety reasons. So the idea is that the ritual, the protocol, when you're having one of these mind-expanding experiences, the ritual holds the experience, holds the space, provides a sense of boundary or comfort, if you will. We put music that has a specific comforting connotation. Uh, we have steps in the process. We try not to talk too much so that people can, you know, relax into things and they can let things flow. And in a way, we, we kind of use these devices with the same intention that a ritual does, which is in a big way to promote safe experiences. Now, what is different from rituals is that we do not use specific imagery, symbols, or songs that are sung, or indigenous elements. We try to keep those content elements as neutral as possible. But the structure is similar to, to what you might refer to as a ritual in that regard. Chris talks about how music is considered the hidden shaman in many of the clinical trials out there. The music that has gone in, in some of the depression studies by the center, some of them have lyrics, voice, uh, and but they're specifically tailored for specific moments. The idea is that the music is the guiding therapist. The prevailing model of therapy is that the person has an introspective experience. They wear headphones, they're leaning back and they wear eye shades and they just let the music take them wherever they need to be taken. So for that process to occur, they also need to go into the dark places, they need to face trauma, they need to, you know, go into the difficult suffering and, you know, and go through all these things that need to be revisited so that they can push forward. The music provides a holding space and a potentiator effect, which is at the same time not directive. So if you have a lot of vocals or a lot of lyrics, you know, it might riff off the wrong way with, with the participant or it might generate undesirable consequences. Dan Kyman is a psychedelic chaplain and caregiver at Synthesis. He talks about the importance of ritual competence in their setting. One of the things that spiritual caregivers can really do, and, and there's even talk right now of this for, for um, something called ritual competence. So to what extent are you capable of bringing in ritual? And what I find beautiful about rituals, it is embodied. But there, there is something about ritual that allows us to work symbolically with complexities 
paradoxes, um, uh, transitions. We, we step into a sort of liminal space. We create a liminal space that is somehow set apart from our everyday lives. I think the rituals actually help us to demarcate when we enter a, a sacred space. A sacred, if you even look at the root meaning of sacred, it comes from to, to be separate, right? It means that it's, it's a separate thing. It's something that is special. It's pertaining to something um, that we that we hold there at a very deep level. And so to use ritual as a way to welcome people into that and to weave in um, what we started to call within synthesis different ways of knowing, not just a rational cere cerebral, you know, cognitive, but but these other ways of being in the world and to draw the attention there. I think that is extremely powerful and it opens up people to maybe dimensions of their own life that they're not that, you know, familiar with or attuned to or in touch with. So I think rituals can really amplify and enhance some of the potentials that psychedelics have. I don't think you can do this work without building proper rituals. And I think even therapists that are less spiritually inclined would, would agree that that's how you create safety. And in a lot of the studies, you do see that they open with maybe not a prayer, but with, you know, contemplative words or that they played music, that there's smells or scents that are, are actively used in the space, uh, that there's maybe imagery that can feel evocative or, or, or that is actively invoking maybe Christian or Buddhist or uh, uh, Islamic symbolism. So. Yeah, I, I think this is it's incredibly important to address this and to acknowledge that this ritual context is deeply valuable for this work. We've been really taken and impressed by how spiritual care and best practice around creating a safe and optimal environment and screening for psychedelic ceremony has been of such importance to each of the practitioners we have spoken to. We asked Dan Kyman what it is to be a psychedelic chaplain. I think Psychedelic chaplaincy is a model that seeks to address the spiritual and existential needs of clients preparing for undergoing and integrating psychedelic experiences. And the focus is more on care than on cure. So where a lot of traditional psychotherapies are focused on you have symptoms, we're going to address those. We'll use a psychodynamic framework to understand those symptoms. We consider a mystical experience a therapeutic mechanism that can alleviate those symptoms. I think a psychedelic chaplain takes a, a step back. I'm not fully doing justice to a lot of the psychotherapists that work with psychedelics because they, I think they, they, they have a lot of attention for the existential and the spiritual. I want to make sure that, that I really express that. But in general, I think chaplains, psychedelic chaplains, are more interested in the phenomenologically rich an existentially rich material that can arise during such an experience. And so people could have therapeutic insights. Oh, my childhood, uh, I suddenly realized that the way that I act is because my mom did that to me when I was that young. And I suddenly have these memories and I actually processed it and worked through it. And I feel much better. I don't want to downplay the massive importance of this, but I'm also interested in people that come back and say, I became one with everything. I touched the face of God. I suddenly communicated with a plant that is in the ceremonial space. And, and this plant taught me everything. 
I communicated with the truffles themselves. These truffles have agency of themselves. That's how I experienced it. And they told me what to do. They told me how to, to live my life better. Now, I think you could focus on what did they tell you, but some people might need some help with what is sometimes called an ontological shock or an ontological shift. In did I just say that I was talking to truffles? Did I just say I touched the face of God? Because that's quite poetic language and I'm an atheist. So psychedelic chaplain is more interested in the shifts in your worldview, in your moral perspectives, the shifts in how you make sense of your life and your own mental health. Is Ayahuasca a plant medicine or plant doctor? Matthew tells us how shamans don't drink Ayahuasca to heal. They drink Ayahuasca to get information, like a diagnostic tool. If you look at the Shipibo tribe, traditionally the patient doesn't drink ayahuasca. It is the corandero, or even better, the onaya. Onaya means one who has wisdom. So what they're working with, with ayahuasca, that's not their expression. They call ayahuasca uni, means wisdom. So it's a, it's a wisdom path. So a healer in the community, historically or traditionally, if somebody's becoming ill in the community, they would go to the healer, the healer would drink ayahuasca, um, first and foremost as a diagnostic tool. So ayahuasca for them is like a, we could almost parallel with an MRI or a CAT scan or, a, or an X-ray. So the healer would drink ayahuasca, that would enable them because of the training and the expansion of their consciousness, they can then look in the system of the patient. Now, Anonaya, when they're treating somebody, they're looking at every single level of the human being. It's full spectrum healthcare. It's way beyond mental healthcare. So the healers are looking for residual energies that have got lodged in the energetic body of the participant. And they then work to clean those energies out. Daniela Peluso is a cultural anthropologist and has worked in lowland South America for four decades, with her research focusing on indigenous Amazonian communities. She explains the distinction between how indigenous peoples traditionally use ayahuasca versus the approach adopted by Westerners who go with an individualist mindset expecting to be healed. It was a communal sort of experience and it was all focused on one patient and in a way that kind of sums up how a lot of indigenous people uh, drink ayahuasca because something you know has happened and everybody as a community has to get together and help that person whereas the western context tends to be you know each individual goes there for their own healing and they're all sitting around and they're all you know on their path to understand something that's going to help them as ayahuasca becomes increasingly popular globally, there are some difficult questions around the commodification, cultural appropriation and sustainability for ayahuasca and the traditions and practices surrounding its use. What I began to see happening is that as more Westerners uh, were interested in ayahuasca, the very behaviour of how Indigenous people were treated by outsiders was definitely a noticeable thing. Uh, it, people, local people were kind of marveled by the way that shamans were considered to be these, you know, reverend noble, noble types. Uh, and, you know, they just thought that was funny. But that kind of behavior also, alongside the demand for, of Westerners to want to participate in more and more ceremonies, 
created a situation where there was a proliferation of shamans. There were people presenting themselves as shamans who weren't, and uh, and not because they're bad people, but because, you know, oh, you know, you need a shaman? Yeah, I drank with my grandfather, or why not? I'll be a shaman. Like, because it just seemed like meeting this market demand, let's say. So now we're talking about, like, the late 80s, early 90s, this kind of sort of playful interactions with the fascination of indigenous people toward Westerners who seem to idealize shamans, because for them, shamans are just people. And the thing about sort of egalitarian societies is that while you may have a different status, and you could be the shaman, or you could be an old woman who's a bone setter, or, you know, a child who happens to be the best hunter, whatever it is that you are, it's First of all, not something that's permanent. It's always shifting and changing depending on the kind of success that you have. But it also means that you live like everybody else. So you still go to the river to collect water. You still do all the same things that people do. You live the same way. But as shamans became more and more elevated, more and more in demand, they began to have like a different status because Westerners were bringing them outside of their countries or they were building lodges and these shamans then were placed in charge of these lodges. And the moment really that that started happening, these shamans also became unavailable in a way uh, to their local communities. So that demand for so-called indigenous authenticity can actually change indigenous practices and community dynamics and is a detrimental byproduct of the growing commodification of ayahuasca. Matthew Watherston, at the Temple of the Way of Light, talks about how he tries to ensure ethical working practices. It would be highly inappropriate, in my view, for a curandero to be working all year long. Um, first and foremost, it's just not healthy. They have to rest, they have to recharge, they have to carry out new dietas. They're carrying energy from the plants and that diminishes. It's almost like a battery. There's no hard and fast black and white, but it, it could be one or two months at the temple and then one or two months back in community. Um, and it's typically like that. It's been like that from the beginning. Um, we've got a team of 14, so we can rotate. So a healer's working with us typically anywhere from three to six months a year. Um, some of the healers, they, they work in other centers, they go to Europe, it's forever shifting. One side of the argument is that global demand for ayahuasca and its shamans can generate income for indigenous people. While global interest in indigenous culture can inspire cultural revitalization. However, cultural revitalization can be biased. Meanings of indigenous practices are reinterpreted and remade according to foreign desires, which threatens the preservation and value of ancient traditions. I have seen healing centers where the people preparing the ayahuasca are telling the facilitators, make sure everybody gets a big glass because, you know, the gringos, if they don't hallucinate, they get really upset. So this idea of dosage and appropriateness also goes out the window. Now, in the past, people would go look for someone, sort of spend time. The healer also would get a sense of kind of what that person maybe could handle or needed or, you know, other kinds of things that have to do with the politics of care of others. You know, you, the more information you have, the better you can do that. So yes, of course, it's a commodity, and it's actually the kind of entrepreneurism that has built up around ayahuasca use because of ayahuasca tourism. Uh, you know, I refer to ayahuasca as an, as an industry as well. Ayahuasca has been a healing tool for the indigenous peoples of Amazonia for thousands of years. 
but as tourists from the UK, USA and Europe flock to the South American jungle, how does their increasingly globalised use of ayahuasca contribute to the exploitation of the global South? People have this kind of utopian sense of breaking down of the nation states and barriers and humanity is just one and we're all one big wonderful world. But we can't ignore the fact that in this global system, the goods are still flowing from the south to the north. There's still, you know, entrepreneurism and industries are still built on the back of people who are exploited and oppressed and have sort of structural discriminations against them. And that whether we like it or not, you know, ayahuasca faces these same problems. It's not exonerated from this because it has spiritual appeal. Daniela is an advisory board member at Shakruna, the Institute for Psychedelic Plant Medicines, whose mission is to provide public education and cultural understanding about psychedelic plant medicines and promote a bridge between the ceremonial use of sacred plants and psychedelic science. Their vision is to preserve and protect plant medicines and to keep them as a valued part of their cultural identity. Uh, Chakruna is really one of the few organizations who's incredibly interested and, and pays attention to cultural contexts of situations. They're about to launch a reciprocity pro- kind of project that's going to try to get people who participate in tourism to put funds toward those areas, but not the retreats and not ayahuasca centers, but to like the local economy that, you know, is sort of in the background of all this ayahuasca use. Because one of the issues with the entrepreneurism that happens around ayahuasca is that these lodges are often owned by outsiders or powerful nationals, certainly people with the economic means, you know, and that this is what, you know, what we call sort of post-colonialism, you know, you have a dominant society dealing with uh, another sort of culture or society that's not on a level playing field. This is where the concept of cultural appropriation comes in, because the difference between cultural exchange and and assimilation is precisely when a dominant society can take advantage of the means of production without giving proper acknowledgement and credit to the people on the ground, sort of with the proprietary knowledge and history of that. So uh, Chikruna has this reciprocity project where you give back to the region, not just like, okay, you've gone to a retreat, donate to them and their little pet project, you know, which means that they're actually caring about the locals, you know, let's give back to other grassroots efforts. And they, I think they're focusing on like things that are, you know, either agriculture or healthcare and so on and so forth. So they certainly have a consciousness about that. Matthew's had approximately 10,000 people through the doors of the temple over the last 13 years and talks to us about issues around the history of exploitation and natural resources in the Amazon. For me, it's sacrilege, you know, it's, a, it's an extraction. Uh, if you look at the forest, if you look at from the time of conquistadors, what happened? You know, the Spanish, the Portuguese, they went down, starting with the gold and then you know, further, further on, colonialization, desecration of the traditions, uh, desecration of the feminine as well, bringing in the religious beliefs, the Catholic beliefs at that time, um, really denigrating the feminine and, and the women uh, within the communities throughout Mesa and South America. And then beyond that, rubber, and, and then pretty much every single resource that has been available to extract from the forest. So clear cutting the trees for beef, you know, cow beef production, the monocultures, on and on and on, mining, etc. What is left? You know, really all that is left is 
the medicines of the forest and the traditions. If there is profit that, that is going to be generated, that profit, in my view, must go to the people of the forest. There's got to be reciprocity and there's got to be an honoring of the source. Every penny goes to the nonprofits. We've donated now over a million dollars um, over the last 10 years to these projects and initiatives in the Amazon. So that's one way that we can do that. We like to think we are a demonstration and leading uh, leading by example. And, and really one of the more of a minor intention is to inspire other organizations in the Amazon Western run organizations um, to do the same. And to bring it back to the science around all this, we hear about Celia's recent study from an ayahuasca retreat centre in Iquitos, Peru. We tested 70 people. We looked at things like depression, anxiety, distress, and self-compassion, or before the retreat, and then afterwards, and we looked at six-month follow-up, and we did find uh, massive decreases in depression, anxiety, and distress. Um, and increases in self-compassion. We looked at epigenetic changes. Basically, your DNA structure can change by things that happen to you in your life, and that can be passed on. So it's kind of a mechanism for intergenerational trauma being passed on, because if you experience a trauma, then it changes your DNA methylation, and this can be passed on to your children. Whereas it used to be thought that you inherit your DNA, and they're, like, fixed. <laughs> but we now know that it changes adaptively throughout your lifetime. And one mechanism people have proposed in a kind of more of a reductionist scientific <laughs> approach, but is that epigenetic changes to things like our stress genes might occur as, as a result of ayahuasca. I mean, we're taking samples in the jungle <laughs> and transporting them back to the UK for analysis. So it's quite non-optimal research conditions. But um, we did find changes to something really interesting, the sigma receptor, um, which is a receptor in the brain that's linked to a lot of psychedelic experiences but also related to kind of stress responses. So that was something interesting, but we need to investigate it further. But yeah, the main the main findings were on depression, anxiety, self-compassion and distress. I mean, we found some cognitive changes, which I thought were really interesting. So people tend to think less negatively. There's a thinking style that's really linked to depression, which is where you kind of remember things very generally, um, so very non-specific memories in, in a very negative way. And we found a kind of shift in that cognitive thinking styles. Well, we really have been on a journey from the trip to the treatment. It's just such a travesty to think of all that promising study around the benefits of psychedelic use back in the 60s that was just stopped in its tracks for 40 years. And even now legislation needs to catch up. There's still a lot of red tape and residual stigma surrounding its study because of the legal status of some of these drugs. The clinical study of psychedelics have made some inroads, but this needs to continue to change for work to progress. But as we heard today, the reframing of psychedelics is already well underway. And I love that the idea of opening up the floodgate to the brain's real estate, so to speak, alongside seeing what we can learn about consciousness and human experience. There's such promising early research into new treatment opportunities for alcohol dependence, depression, anxiety, PTSD and the significance of ritual, context and environment in how we experience things. That's all hugely significant. Imagine the possibilities of future mainstream use of plant-based medicine and what that would mean for society and for our mental health. Maybe not just even mental health, but possibly human development. Yeah, it's a real paradigm shift. We've talked about wellness as being a combination of mind, body and spirit, but wellness also takes work. 
whether that's therapy or your own ritual, we each need to find a way to expand our minds, unlock new ways of thinking, and take accountability for how our lives and ways of being affect the world around us. In the end, our own wellness is intertwined with the protection of the environment and the harsh effects of capitalism and globalization. And in order to transform from worker bees into free and enlightened individuals, we're gonna to have to break down our individualistic mindsets and dismantle some heavy systems of oppression. And where we've traveled from originally looking at microdosing as an answer of sorts, it just exposes more about the structural failings in society and the pressures on human beings to be better, faster, and have more output. So it's about inverting that approach to something inward facing and more transformative on a personal human level. Science and spirituality can work together. Wisdom, medicine. Yep, bring on the psychedelic renaissance. Also, it's worth mentioning for anyone out there that's keen to go and investigate for themselves our scientist-advised patients. And to wait for more developments in the research effort underway. It's really worth remembering that at the present, there's no regulatory board overseeing this growing number of psychedelic retreats, varying standards across professional training, care, integrity and safety. So if you're curious, please make sure you are making informed decisions as to the best place to seek these experiences out. And that's it for this episode of Gorilla Science Presents. One final thing we'd like to mention is none of today's contributors sell any of the drugs that we've discussed today. So you'll have to look elsewhere if you're interested. And as always, if you'd like to find out more about us, then please do find us on social media by searching for Gorilla Science. That's G-U-E-R-I-L-L-A Science on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. We'd love to hear your thoughts and what you think wellness is all about. You can discover more about our speakers and further reading in our show notes on our website by going to gorillascience.org slash gorillascience presents.